Hello and welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for the 16th Sunday in Ordinary Time, July 18th, 2021. The 12 returned from their initial missionary outreach, their success evidenced by the continually growing crowds. Unable to find time even to eat, Jesus invites the disciples to follow him to a place of solitude. The people, however, are undeterred and follow on foot, beating Jesus to his destination. What the Lord does next shows the tenderness of his heart. Moved with compassion, he provides for their needs, and in so doing, he continues echoing a new Exodus theme while taking upon himself the role of a new Moses and a new Joshua. Thanks everyone for joining us again. Today we are diving into the readings for Mark chapter 6 verses 30 through 34. And this gospel is relatively short. It um, it serves as a kind of transitional piece. If we continue to read past verse 34, we would come to the story of the multiplication of loaves and fishes which actually is the only miracle story uh, recorded in um, all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So the synoptics and in the gospel of John. However, so you'd think that's where we're going to pick up next week, right? However, during year B, when we get to the point in Mark's gospel, where we have a setup for the story of the multiplication of loaves and fishes, we jump into John's gospel and we actually end up reading through John's gospel um, of the, the uh, we end up reading through uh, the bread of life discourse at uh, John chapter six, which is actually related to the multiplication of loaves and fishes um, in John's gospel. Okay. So we have a bit of a transition kind of gospel here. And if you read the, um, the, the scholarly literature, so most scholarly commentaries on our gospel here, Mark 6, verses 30 through 34, it pairs it up with the story of the multiplication. So many scholars see it as an introduction and kind of a hinge point leaning into the story of the multiplication. So keep that in mind. We'll bring that up, but it's a short gospel. We only have uh, what, four verses here, 30 to 34. Um, but there, there's some good stuff in here as usual. So let's read it together before we go any deeper. I'm reading as usual from the revised standard version. Mark chapter six, verses 30 through 34. The apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things." That was Mark chapter six, verses 30 through 34. So let's break down our readings together. So this does pick up um, mostly where we left off last week. Why do I say mostly? Because I did mention that um, we get a little bit of an interlude in Mark's gospel between the sending of the disciples and the regathering of the disciples with the um, story of John the Baptist's arrest and beheading, Okay. So um, picking up at 6.30 here in Mark's gospel, we do kind of skip over the interlude that Mark likes to sandwich in between 
of John the Baptist, but we get the wrap up of last week's gospel. So Jesus had sent the 12 out two by two, remember? And he told them to drive out demons. Um, they're curing the sick. Um, we get another detail right off the bat here um, that they also taught, okay? But let's not get too ahead of ourselves. So at the beginning of our gospel, right at the beginning of verse 30, we're told that the apostles gathered around Jesus. Now, interestingly enough, this is the first time in the gospel of Mark that we have the 12, the disciples, being referred to as apostles. Now, is this accidental or Mark just wanting to switch up the words he's using? I don't think so because the word apostle has its root in the verb apostello, which means to be sent, okay? And so Jesus has sent them out in the previous section of our gospel. They have allowed themselves to be sent out and they have been doing the work of apostellos, of apostles, okay? Those who are sent. And so when they come back, it's no coincidence that Mark refers to them as apostles, those who have been sent. So the apostles gathered around Jesus and they tell him, all that they had done and taught, okay? So we're told that Jesus sends them out to drive out demons. We're told that while they're sent out, they're also curing the sick. And then when they come back, we're told that they also taught, okay? So we have the sense that they also preached as well. Now this connects us once more to an earlier part in Mark's gospel that we explored last week as well. Mark chapter three, verses 14. He appointed 12 to be with him and to be sent out to preach, okay? So when we looked at Mark 3, 14 last week, we brought it up in relation to this idea of being with the Lord, how it's so important for the disciples to have been with the Lord before they are sent. And so they spend much time with our Lord before he sends them. And he only sends them, we get the sense, once they have, uh, once they are properly prepared, and once he sends them out, according to Mark three fourteen, they are sent out to preach. Okay, so they don't just bring um, exorcisms, and they don't just bring healings with them. They also bring teaching, and teaching in some ways is the most important because. The teaching is showing what is the truth, which is an explication of Christ himself, right? He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so uh, our Lord provides for our physical needs. And I certainly don't want to come off as if uh, being possessed by a demon is merely a physical matter. There's There's certainly something spiritual going on there as well. But nevertheless, often the suffering that comes with it is manifested in in the most horrific way in physical suffering, right? We see this a lot in the gospels when we have um, descriptions of those who are possessed by demons. But it's important to our Lord, not just to cure, to, to heal the physical, but also the spiritual. And how does Jesus feel, uh, how does he heal the spiritual? By his very words, which enter into the mind and the heart and the soul of people and teach them the truth, which is his very self, okay? So the disciples now called the apostles participate in that teaching ministry as well. 
So they come back, Jesus regathers them. We get a sense potentially that he even gave them like a date at which to gather, a date and a place. And so they're reunited and he wants to hear about everything that they have done. Um, this is something important too, where um, we we get the sense that early on in, in the ministry of the church, here manifested in the ministry of the disciples, it is deeply important to uh, celebrate the glory of God and his power that has been deputized to his members of the church, all right? And this is what they're doing with our Lord. And so we should keep this in mind as well. Um, it's very easy as human beings to focus on the negative. It's also very easy as Christians to just focus on the negative. What is not going well in the church? What is not going well in our parish? What is not going uh, well in our apostolate? Um, but it's deeply important to take an intentional um, look at what is going well. Why? Because then we we see for ourselves how the Holy Spirit is alive and working, and we give glory to God by calling to mind all the good things that he is doing. Verse 31, he said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. Um, these are words that I would like our Lord to speak to me, right? Now, um, lest we uh, again believe that they are only spoken to the 12 or that they don't have ramifications for our life, we need to understand that they are indeed addressed to us. Now, it can still be really tempting to think that the, uh, the disciples had it better in some ways because maybe he had the boat all ready for them and he had snacks on the boat and he had a place where he knew was a good place to take them. And he's just like, come on guys. And, and that may have, I, I think that's probably what's going on here. Um, but our Lord still does address this, this statement to us, come away, this invitation, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. Again, we get this link to Mark 3, 14. He appointed 12 to be with him, okay? So it's not sufficient to simply be sent. It's prerequisite to be with the Lord before one is sent. But we immediately also get the sense that being with the Lord is a continual requirement, all right? In fact, Mary Healy, Catholic biblical scholar who has a commentary in the Gospel of Mark, puts it this way, quote, to be with him remains a requirement of fruitful apostleship that must be constantly renewed, end quote. All right, so what our Lord is doing by this invitation is showing them that being with him is this continual requirement that must be constantly renewed for their sentness, their apostleship to be fruitful. He's also calling them to imitate him. Why? Because we see Jesus all throughout the gospels um, separating himself, going away to a place of solitude. And this makes perfect sense because he has also just been teaching them to imitate him in casting out demons, in curing illnesses, in teaching, okay? But again, Jesus does not only do those things. He takes time away to pray, to be with the Father. And so he is then in turn teaching the disciples that even though they have now been sent 
and have this deputized authority to do these amazing things, it is still deeply important in in this continual requirement for them to go away at times and to spend time in rest and in prayer, just as he himself has done. And so we see here how Christ's work is literally to stamp his image upon us, to impress his image upon us, that our role is to follow him, look at him, see him, and imitate him. And insofar as the apostles are faithful in trying to imitate our Lord in all aspects of his life, they will have fruit in their own apostolate, in their own ministry, all right? Come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. And this is an invitation, again, not just for the 12, but for all of us. Last episode, we touched on how some of the themes that are present in Jesus's, uh, what I ended up calling his like pre-departure instructions, um, and uh, and uh, the 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 ministry, the work that the disciples end up doing, they manifest a new Exodus theme, right? Now we see this coming up again, actually, here at Mark chapter six, verses thirty through thirty-four, and we're going to see it again in um, in the bread of life discourse, as well as the the multiplication of loaves and fishes. This new Exodus theme, so we see it coming up again in this idea of rest. What do I mean by this? Well, let's look to some some citations or some some um, some discussions of rest, if you will, that we find in the Old Testament. We can turn to Exodus, first Exodus, um, chapter 33, verses 14, verse 14, excuse me, which reads, he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest, Okay. Now, we know the topic of the book of Exodus, it's the Exodus. And so here who is speaking, it's the Lord himself. And he's saying, when you go out, my presence will be with you. And what I will do is give you rest, okay? So we already got the sense that Jesus is sending the disciples out into the world to initiate this new Exodus where um, the people are being prepared to come into the new promised land and they're gathering followers to come with them on this way, on this new Exodus, right? And just as God promised rest for the people at the first Exodus, so he promises rest for them in this new Exodus, this second Exodus, all right? And this is this is this theme coming up again by Jesus having the disciples or encouraging, inviting the disciples to rest after their work. We can turn also to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 10. When you go over the Jordan and live in the land, which the Lord your God gives you to inherit, when he gives you rest from all your enemies, when he gives you rest from all your enemies. Okay, so once again, we're getting details on what will happen when the Exodus is completed, when they actually enter into the promised land by crossing over the Jordan River. What happens? He will give you rest from all your enemies, all right? And then we can also turn to the New Testament, which um, reflects on this Old Testament idea. Hebrews chapter four, verse eight 
For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not speak later of another day. Now, we don't have time to go into the full context of Hebrews 4 here, but essentially what is going on is that the writer of the letter to the Hebrews is bringing up Joshua, who is the successor to Moses, who leads the people into the promised land. And he's saying, if he had given them the rest that God had spoken of, God would not speak of a later rest. And so what the writer of the letter to the Hebrews is saying is that there's going to be this new rest, all right? And is this not kind of alluded to by Jesus speaking of rest, making an invitation to rest in these pericopes, in these sections of scripture that have very clear new Exodus themes to them? It's a very fascinating idea going on here. Let's continue exploring our gospel here. Um, Let's pick up at the second part of verse 31. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. They had no opportunity even to eat. Um, This shows the intensity with which the apostles are working, the intensity with which Jesus is working, and even the intensity with which people are following after them. Um, our, Our readings from Mark have been building and building and building and building, looking at, um, the, the charisma of our Lord and his followers and uh, the magnetism with which they do their work, right? People are, uh, you know, hemming Jesus in. Um, people are following him from, are coming to him from great distances. And we're told here another detail by Mark the evangelist that um, they are so busy with so many people coming to them that they do not even have time to eat, okay? Um, I have another quote here from Mary Healy. Um, They, the apostles, are taking on the character of Jesus, she says, who subordinates his personal needs to his ministry, to his people, okay? So we talked about um, moments ago how the fruitfulness of the apostles' mission is dependent upon how much they imitate Christ. And Christ himself was so intense in his work and so concerned with the needs of others that he put his own needs aside. And we see the disciples doing the same. So they imitate him in much the same way. But just as Jesus eventually took heed of his own needs and cared for his own needs, the Lord wants to make sure that the disciples are doing the same. And this is in part, again, the invitation to go away to a deserted place. Why? Because they had no leisure even to eat. So they went away in the boat, it says at verse 32, to this deserted place by themselves. But many saw them leaving and recognized them. And it says they hurried on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. Okay. So there's a sense that they're on their way to this deserted place. There's some debate over where exactly they're going. Some people will say, oh, well, they must be passing over to the Eastern side again. Others think that maybe 
they're traveling down like the Jordan River. Um, I really am not sure, but I, if I had to take a guess, I would say I'd probably agree with the point of view that they're just traveling either up or down the western side of the Sea of Galilee. So there's going to be parts of the shore of, sea, of the Sea of Galilee that are more secluded from towns. And um, the, the little detail that um, people saw them and hurried there on foot from all the towns seems to maybe confirm this idea. And, uh, and perhaps, um, you know, they see them sailing north or south. And so crowds begin to follow them um, on foot. And uh, as they come into a new town, they, they make kind of a scene with this great crowd. And, and people are asking, where are you going? What are you doing? Well, well, Jesus is in that boat out there. And so we're, we're, um, we're, we're trying to outrun him. We want to meet him wherever he lands on the shore and a bigger and bigger crowd perhaps um, uh, gather as they're doing this. And it is a large crowd. Um, we see this in a second at verse 34 and they indeed do, um, beat Jesus, if you will, uh, to this deserted place. Now, some scholars have pointed out that, um, to be able to do this, to, to kind of beat the disciples and our Lord to his destination on foot, means that perhaps they were not, Jesus and the disciples were not necessarily trying very hard to travel as fast as possible by boat on the Sea of Galilee. And so perhaps Jesus anticipating the possibility or even seeing perhaps from a distance the crowds on the shore, um, keeping an eye out for him and, and kind of following him by land and by foot, perhaps our Lord anticipated that the disciples would not actually have much solitude to themselves when they finally landed on shore where they where their destination was and so perhaps they took their time getting there in order that their time in the boat might be a time of solitude and even a time to finally eat and again this conforms to um Jesus's past patterns, if you will, right? He he seems to only be able to get away from people by getting into a boat and going out into the water. And even then there's sometimes, there's every once in a while a sense in which people even launch into their own water crafts and still try to pursue him on the water. Man, he had to have been really, really patient um, to be able to handle this because obviously he is God and he knows all of our needs and he has the most tender heart of any man who has ever lived. Right. But, um, he, because he was fully man, he also had, um, these, these physical needs. He would get tired. He would get hungry. Um, he had emotional and mental needs too. Right. Um, we talk a lot nowadays about being extroverted or introverted. Who knows if Jesus was extroverted or introverted? Some theologians make the argument that Jesus's uh, temperament was um, completely balanced, right? And this philosophically makes sense actually because um, somebody who has progressed in virtue will be able, able to smooth out the rough edges of the temperament with which they are born. And who is the person that is most virtuous, right? Our Lord himself. 
And so this probably makes sense, but nonetheless, this would mean that at times, even though he perhaps enjoyed being around people, um, he also wanted some time by himself, okay? And so our Lord is so patient, so, so patient. And um, and in some ways we see him being very kind of fatherly in this reading here, very much manifesting the heart of the father. So they try to go away by boat to this deserted place and um, their plans are foiled because at verse 34, we read, as he went ashore, Jesus, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. He had compassion on them. All right. He finally goes ashore. Evidently, they're in their quote-unquote deserted place, but their plans for solitude have been foiled by this great crowd. They just cannot get away from the people. I mean, Jesus really is like a rock star here. Um, people just love this man um, or at least are so intrigued by him as many people are by famous people. Uh, that they are that they are going through these great efforts to track him down and follow him. If there were paparazzi in the first century, Jesus would have had paparazzi uh, following him around for sure. There's no doubt about that um, from the details we get in the gospel. So he went ashore, he sees this great crowd and Mark tells us he had compassion for them. Now this is, um, an intense Greek word that we find here translated compassion. We've talked about it in previous episodes. It it is this this intense uh, this intense verbal form of a noun, and the the verbal form of the noun that we get here is ex esplonkniste. It's a big it's a big Greek word. Esplonkniste, and it translates the noun splonknon, which means um, it's best translated just like guts or innards. And I know we've talked about this before in the podcast, but it's it's worth bringing up again because it gives us a window into our Lord's emotional life. Um, we all know what Mark is trying to get at here when he uses this Greek word. In other words, he saw the crowd when he went ashore and he had this intense feeling, this intense physical feeling in the pit of his stomach, essentially, is what Mark is telling us. He had compassion for them. Why? Scripture tells us because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, this is a loaded phrase in scripture. This is a loaded phrase when we look at Old Testament context. In fact, the church wants us to understand the quote-unquote loadedness of this phrase by giving us the first reading that it does about shepherds and sheep and the sheep being shepherdless. 
because not only was there a sense in which the people of Israel, the sheep of God were shepherdless in the Old Testament, but they continue to be so. And they will continue to be so until the one true good shepherd comes. And who is that? It's our Lord himself. So we have our reading from Jeremiah. I'm not going to quote it um, because you will have just heard it at mass um, that confirms this idea um, this loaded idea of sheep without a shepherd. We can turn also to First Kings chapter 22, verse 17. I saw uh, Israel scattered upon the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. Second Chronicles chapter 18, verse 16. He said, I saw Israel scattered upon the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. Pretty much the exact same quote there. Um, and Chronicles is like a retelling of Kings. So a little side note there, but it makes sense that they're very similar wording. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 17. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. And Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. He, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So the, the previous um, citations show how the quote unquote shepherds of Israel, like the, the human leaders of Israel are failing in their duty. And it's not until God himself acts as the shepherd as prophesied in Isaiah 40, that the, the people shall indeed be cared for. Why? Because God himself will flee, will feed his flock as a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. But perhaps the one um, section of scripture that most corresponds to our gospel here at Mark uh, chapter 6 verse 34 is from Numbers chapter 27, verse 16. This is Moses speaking. He says, who shall go out before them and come in before them? Who shall lead them out and bring them in? That the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep which have no shepherd. Who shall go before them? Lead them out and bring them in. That the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep without a shepherd. And, and if we continue reading that verse 18, the Lord answers Moses. It says, the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hand upon him. Cause him to stand before Eleazar, the priest and all the congregation and you shall commission him in their sight. So what do we have going on here? We have Moses preemptively recognizing that once he dies, he's concerned that there will be no one to shepherd the people of Israel. And so he makes this request to the Lord, or he floats this concern to the Lord. And the Lord's answer is that Moses should appoint Joshua um, to stand in his place. If we continue reading at verse 20, um, the Lord says to Moses, you shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. 
Why is this fascinating? Well, again, I've said that um, in last week's gospel, this week's gospel as well, and then future um, gospels in the next coming weeks, we have this new Exodus theme. And once again, this new Exodus theme is confirmed by this idea of sheep without a shepherd, because it is Joshua who is going to be taken up as a new Moses over the people of Israel. And so Jesus here himself is seen as a new Moses. And interestingly enough, what a lot of people don't realize is that Jesus and Joshua actually have the same name. Jesus and Joshua actually have the same name. So uh, Jesus's name in, uh, in Hebrew is Yeshua, Joshua, okay? This is fascinating because we see that in his name, we have the embodiment in some ways of at least one aspect of his mission, but but when it's taken to its fullness, it is in some way the fullness of his mission, right? Joshua led the people out of their wandering in the desert into the promised land. And it is not our Lord leading us from wandering in our own desert into the promised land. And so we he, we see Jesus here taking on the role of the new Moses, of the new Joshua, who is, uh, who is taking the role of Moses, the new Moses as well, all right? This is going to set the stage also for our coming readings, right? We're going to talk about the multiplication of loaves and fishes, which sets the stage for um, the, 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 is, is deeply linked to the um, bread of life discourse. Um, we have the people in large amounts, um, like large crowds of people, and they don't have any food, right? And do we see any situation like this in the Old Testament? Yes, the people of Israel wandering in the desert who don't have any food. And so what does Moses do? He invokes the Lord and God sends manna, right? And so what is going to happen? Um, Jesus is going to multiply loaves and fishes, and I, I can't, I'm, I was going to give you a detail, but I'm, I'm hold myself back. Um, uh, he's going to multiply loaves and fishes and uh, he, he's going to give them the new manna, right? Um, and the, the new manna is not actually the loaves that he multiplies on that occasion. That's just a precursor to the bread that he's going to give. And that is, he's going to give a whole sermon on that, a whole theology of that in the bread of life discourse of John chapter six, right? He's going to ask them, um, he's going to say to them, your ancestors ate manna in the desert and yet they died, right? Um, If you eat of the manna that I will, that I give, you shall not die. Okay, I'm getting way too far ahead of myself here. Got to save something for coming weeks. Nevertheless, the Exodus theme is uh, echoing over and over again in our readings, not only from last week, but also from this weekend and a beautiful setup for what is to come in in the coming weeks in our future readings from uh, John chapter six. So Jesus fulfills in himself the prophecy of Isaiah 40, of God himself shepherding his people. And uh, what we're going to see 
um, in the conclusion of our gospel here, but in the, the gospels of coming weeks is how Jesus indeed is going to uh, fulfill Isaiah 40. So how do we see that initially in the conclusion of our gospel here? Well, it says he went ashore. He saw a great crowd. He had um, compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things, all right? So we said at the beginning of our time together that um, we have the apostles who have just finished going out and teaching, right? In addition to um, driving out demons and curing sickness and how the teaching is in some ways the most important and it is like the spiritual aspect, the spiritual healing that they bring. And so here we're going to see Jesus in a in short order providing for the physical needs of the people by um, multiplying bread and fish. But previous to that, having seen the great crowds, having compassion upon this, this feeling in his gut of, of their needs, right? And we get a sense of like this feeling of sadness. He's moved to provide for them. And how does he initially provide for them? He begins to teach them many things. He provides for them spiritually. This is something important for us to keep in mind and something very easy for us to gloss over. It's very easy for us to focus on Jesus's exorcisms. It's very easy for us to um, focus on Jesus's healings. It's very easy for us to focus on Jesus's multiplying bread, right? Um, And then sometimes we look at our own lives and say, has Jesus done anything magnificent in my life? The most important thing that God can do for us is to teach us spiritual things. And he does this constantly, especially if we open our heart to it. Um, And he uses all the situations that we have in our life, all the things that we encounter, even things that um, he does not desire for us. And yet he allows, he makes good out of them. He uses them as an opportunity to teach us some deep spiritual lesson, um, to provide for our spiritual needs and to heal us spiritually. And so we should press into that. I want to close our time together with a quote from um, uh, a Byzantine bishop who was a, a, a commentator on the scriptures. He's a bit of a scripture scholar. Um, And he's uh, sometimes quoted by St. Thomas Aquinas. So St. Thomas Aquinas um, was a brilliant man. I maybe have mentioned that fact in our podcast before, Um, but there's many reasons why he is brilliant. And one of them is because he compiled um, this, this, um, this compilation. I know that's redundant, but he, um, he created this compilation of, commentaries on the four gospels. And I'm going to butcher the Latin name because I actually never took Latin, but it's Catina Aurea. If you want to look it up, um, it's public domain and you can find it online. Um, C-A-T-E-N-A-A-U-R-E-A. And the story is that Aquinas had so much of this in his head that he um, often when he would write, Um, He would have multiple scribes 
and he would go to one scribe and he would dictate. And then while that scribe was writing, he would go to the next scribe and dictate more. And then while that scribe was writing what he dictated, he would go to the next one and dictate. And, um, and so the thought is that he perhaps um, compiled the Catina Aurea in this same way. And so we, you can, you can go to it. You can look up, for example, Mark chapter six, verses 30 through 34. And what Aquinas has for you is what the um, early church fathers, what theologians up to his time and commentators on scripture said about this section of the gospel. It's a really, um, it's a really awesome resource, a really gift, a real great gift that Thomas Aquinas has given to us. So in his section on Mark chapter six, verses 30 through 34, our gospel, he has a quote from Theophylact, who is this um, this um, Byzantine bishop who died in the 1100s. And Theophylact says this in regards to our gospel, which is where I want to close us off. He says, quote, so do not wait for Christ till he himself call you, but outrun him and come before him. Do not wait for Christ till he himself call you, but outrun him and come before him. This is a fantastic idea and definitely something worth meditating on when we um, pray with our gospel from this weekend. This idea that um, we can kind of look at the followers of Jesus, the people in these crowds, and be like, why couldn't they just leave Jesus alone? And yet there is no way our Lord was um, was was asking them that. Like, can you just leave me alone? Obviously, because he reacts with this this compassion, right? This this feeling in his his insides, this very like physical, biological, psychosomatic reaction, right? Emotional, very emotional. Jesus, um, Jesus loves when people um, corner him, kind of, right? Now, um, we have to corner him with an openness to his will. So it's not good to corner him and then not like the answer you get, like the rich young man, right? He, he kind of corners our Lord a little bit. I mean, there's other people that definitely corner him more, but... Um, you know, what must I do to receive eternal life? And Jesus answers him and he goes away sad. That is a recipe for disappointment, jadedness, right? Um, jadedness comes from not being open to the will of God. We're just constantly frustrated with our lives or with what God is, is the life that God is crafting for us. Um, but he loves when people corner him, so to speak, so long as we are, we are open to, to his will for us. And so is this not what the people in the crowd do? They outrun him. Like, and I love that Theophilact uses those words because like technically speaking, no one can really outrun God. Like who, who pursues more like God pursuing us or us pursuing God? And yet... To our human ability, we can do everything we can to outrun God and this pleases him. Like imagine, like put yourself in this gospel. 
and you want something from the Lord and his disciples, but he's, he's got to get away for a little bit. So you're, you're practically chasing after him in the sea as they launch their boats, but then you can't get out, you can't get out there any further. And he's, he's telling you like, just wait, just give me some time. Right. Does he not do this? And uh, he starts um, sailing down the shore of the sea of Galilee, but you don't go home. You don't get deflated. You don't get mad and jaded. You just start running along the shore, keeping his boat in sight until you see it curve around and aim towards the shore, a port, a harbor, something of the like. And you plant yourself right where the Lord is going to land. How is our Lord going to look at you when he steps off the boat and you're there? You were there when he left and you are there when he comes back. I cannot think that Jesus would have anything for you but a very large grin and an open heart and open hands. Theophilact says, so do not wait for Christ till he himself call you, but outrun him and come before him. Mm-hmm.